our little Tegan <coughs> is going to be eight on, Wednesday, on Thursday. So it's a bit of a surprise for her for us to go down and be there. She's been in hospital this week. And that may upset everything. She's been on antibiotics. And she was planned to begin her third round of treatment for this awful problem she has, which is aplastic anemia. For those who are not familiar with aplastic anemia, basically it means that her bone marrow has ceased to produce anything at all. Anything. And so she's been living on somebody else's blood for the last six, years, six months or seven months. And that's pretty relevant to what we're talking about right now. Because we're going to speak about the death of Christ and his blood poured out for us. Science is pretty clever, but the Bible had told us nearly 2,000 or 3,000, 4,000 years ago that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And if it's not being demonstrated in the life of my little granddaughter, then I don't know where. Ask Lindsay, he knows about that. Ask Ev about Fred, her dear husband, who passed away a number of years ago with leukemia. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Some churches don't like to speak about the blood of Christ. In fact, some people don't like us to speak about the, the blood of Christ. But we need to. Let's pray. Lord, as we take your word in our hands today, and we do speak about the death of your beloved Son, who is our Lord and Saviour, and as we think about the significance of his blood poured out for us as he suffered and died on the cross, we pray that it will not be with a sense of horror, but with a sense of wonder and awe and a sense of thanksgiving and praise and glory to your name for this wonderful plan of salvation that you've provided for us. So help us, we ask. And Lord, put your hand upon us each. Give us listening ears, obedient hearts, and responsive hearts, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. The amazing thing when you think about the death of Christ is that it was the only way, the only way to reverse the effects of sin. Absolutely the only way. There was no other way. Well, God could have clicked his fingers, I suppose, and said, that's enough, let's zap the world, let's start all over again. But that's not the way of God. The way of God is to redeem and to reconcile and to provide because he's a God of incredible love and a God who demonstrates his ability to save. God saves. Salvation belongs to God, the scriptures tell us. And God is our saviour. The Lord Jesus is our saviour. You see, the effects of Adam's rebellion, uh, uh, sorry, Satan's rebellion first up, and his challenge to God's authority was that there was a counterfeit spiritual kingdom established. We call it the world, the world. And it's definitely counterfeit. And if you think about Satan, the Bible describes him in these terms and calls him the God of this world. But Jesus spoke of him as the prince of darkness. 
and many other descriptive words, the, the devil, the deceiver, the serpent, many descriptive words. But he brought about this horrible thing called the world. And the Bible tells us that if we love the world, we can't love God. It's something that's contrary to God in every conceivable way. But then it was Adam's disobedience too that brought about the disorder in our creation, the curse that came with that disobedience, and the death and the judgment that has passed on to all men. As Romans 5 tells us, all have sinned. But it also tells us that through this one man, Adam, sin, death came upon all men because all have sinned. And so God's judgment was there. At the same time, God in his desire and his love for us provides salvation. So the first thing I want us to notice is that the death of Christ was not a mistake. It was God's plan from eternity past. And that's that scripture that I read from 1 Peter. But also when Peter stood up on, on the day of Pentecost and he began to preach, he said, this is exactly what God had planned. It was his foreknowledge. It was his definite plan. And then the Bible talks about Jesus as the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world in Revelation 13.8. What a description. So the very first intent of God through the death of Christ was to bring this entire universe back under his control. Sin had perverted it. Sin had brought a curse upon it. And now we've got God acting to bring it back under his control. And there's a beautiful verse in Ephesians which says, And he, God, made known to us this mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ to bring all things, look at this, all things in heaven, all things on earth, together under one head, back under Christ's control. Under Christ. Now that's an amazing thing. That's God's eternal plan, purpose for this world. But how to bring it about? Well, Colossians tells us, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Five minutes ago, we took a little piece of grape juice and with it, we were thinking about the death of Jesus. But from God's point of view, this is something from eternity past. And the blood of Jesus shed on the cross was intended to bring the entire universe back under his control. Well, the lovely thing about this is that Jesus wins. He always wins. You may not think he does when you look in our world today, but he wins. And he wins because the Bible says that after he became obedient unto death, even that death on the cross, God exalted him. Look at this. God has exalted him to the highest place. He's given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So I don't know where else you could go. But what I do know is that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus wins, friends. And this was God's plan. The next thing is that his intent was to destroy, defeat and destroy this enemy of God, Satan. And the Bible tells us, and last week, if you remember, Lindsay read this scripture. It says, since the children, that's you and me, have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, He might destroy him who holds that power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And again in Colossians chapter 2, if we took time to read that, it will say that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has disarmed all those evil spiritual forces, every one of them, and he succeeded in doing this by his death on the cross so again Jesus wins he does he always wins and the Bible tells us then the end will come when he Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the book of Revelation tells us that the destiny of the evil one is that he was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus definitely wins again. But then the third thing was that God intended to make a whole new covenant. It would be a covenant of grace because the old covenant, the one you read about in the Old Testament of your Bible, It was a conditional thing. If you do this, then I will do that. It required complete obedience to those Ten Commandments. But sadly, that old covenant had no power whatever to help you not to sin. It had no power whatever to enable you to live a way that pleases God. It simply said, here's the standard, and if you can meet that standard, then you've pleased God. But who of us can meet the standard? Not a one of us. In fact, Romans chapter 3 tells us, well, it's through the law, those Ten Commandments, we have a knowledge of sin. That's how we know what sin is. Until the law came, men were sinning, but they didn't know they were sinning. It's like you and me driving down a highway and you're getting along nicely 100 k's and suddenly there's one of those round things on the side of the road with a circle and it's got an 80 in it. And you look down at your speedo and, oh, oh, I'm doing 100. Uh, You see... There comes the knowledge of what you need to do, an 80. You continue to drive at 100, then there's a price to pay. And that's exactly the way it is with sin. Through the law came the knowledge of sin. Paul talked about it. He says, I didn't know what coveting was until I read it in the law. Thou shalt not covet. I used to covet all the time, but I didn't know I was coveting until the law told me that was a sin. Well, this covenant that God made was sealed with the blood of an animal. Now, excuse my uh, graphics, but I did this once for some kids. A covenant always has two parties. And here you can notice that the two parties are really God on one side and on the other side, the people of Israel. And in the middle, you've got Moses, and he was the mediator. 
And if you read in Exodus chapter 24, there was a procedure. Moses was to read the words of the law, the Ten Commandments. And when the people heard it, they said, good, we'll do that. So he read it again after writing it down. So everybody had a written copy of it. And again, the people said, we will do it and we will obey. But what Moses had done was, first of all, kill an animal. He divided the blood into two separate bowls. And he took half of the blood and he sprinkled it on the altar. That sprinkling on the altar was the effect of signing God's side of, the, of this covenant. But when the people said, we will do and we will obey, then Moses took the second bowl of blood and he sprinkled it on the... doesn't sound very nice, doesn't it? Getting blood splattered over you. But in actual fact, that was men's, the, the side of the people being signed by God or by Moses as the, as the mediator in this case. Well, that's fine. The people have now agreed that they like this new arrangement with God. God said, if you do this, I will do that. We like it. We'll agree. We'll obey. But you know and I know if you read on in the book of Exodus chapter 32, Moses went back to the mountain. He was there for an extended time. The people said, we don't know where he's gone. They then sent to Aaron, make us a God. Come on, come on, make us a God. We don't know where Moses is. And so Moses made a golden calf and he stuck it up in front of the people and said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And all the people started prancing around it. And uh, I think there was a lot of other things that were not nice going on around it. And when Moses came back down, he said, I can hear something going on in the camp. And then he realized what was happening. And he broke those stones that he had, the stones that had God had written with his finger, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments. They'd broken it. Just a few days before they said, we will do it, we will obey, but they'd broken it. So here is a covenant that had failed. It failed on a number of areas. And so God made a promise through Jeremiah. God said, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and remember them no more. So here is the promise in Jeremiah of a brand new covenant. And yet when Jesus was with his disciples on that last night when he took the bread and then he took the cup and he said, this is my body. This is my body which is given for you. But then he said a remarkable thing as he took that cup of wine. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. What an amazing statement Jesus made. Because he's telling us that by his death on the cross, God's side of this new covenant was being signed and settled by his blood shed on the cross. The cross was like the altar. It was God's side. And as Jesus suffered and died on the cross and his blood was poured out, that was God's side of the new covenant, sealed, signed, delivered. Wonderful. And the amazing thing is that Jesus was not only the sacrifice, but he is the mediator. And this new covenant becomes ours, or we're part of it. But when do we become part of it? Peter tells us, 
He tells us this. Jesus is that mediator of a new covenant. And the beautiful thing about it is that when God makes a covenant and God makes a promise, he's a faithful God. He cannot, will not fail. He's a God who says that in that covenant, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And it is guaranteed by the eternal spirit. And it says here, it's an eternal covenant and it's been signed by the blood of Jesus. But what about you and me? Where do we fit within this? How do we become part of this covenant with God? Well, Peter tells us, he says to God's elect, strangers in the world who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And look at the last phrase. For obedience to Jesus Christ and, and sprinkling with his blood. Exactly what Moses did way back there. So this is a fascinating thing. You and I become part of this covenant relationship with God when we become obedient to Jesus Christ. You see, there's a decision we have to make in life. It's not where we were brought up and what our fathers taught us and what our church says. There is a decision that's individual, it's personal for every single one of us. And that decision is that we must make the decision to reverse what Adam did. Adam chose to disobey God. And we need to make a decision in repentance and turn to God in submission to him and decide with his grace, by his spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the beautiful thing happens is that by his spirit, we are sprinkled with his blood. The covenant. And God then says, Peter goes on to say, you are now God's chosen people. You are now the ones that God is blessing with all these things. Now here's the fourth thing that was significant about the death of Jesus. The fourth thing is this, that is this incredible God of ours from the very beginning provided a way for man to approach him. Sinful man to approach him. Adam disobeyed. We know that Abel came to God and brought with him an acceptable sacrifice. Cain did not. But this acceptable sacrifice was something that each person must have. This sacrifice needed to be an animal that was perfect and it would need to die as a substitute. Now you could say, well, what's the reason for that? Well, from a human point of view, we'd say it was a waste of a good animal. But from God's point of view, it was signifying exactly what he intended about the coming of Jesus. Looking forward in a prophetic kind of a way to the coming of Jesus. Because as I read a little earlier from Peter, and we've seen already that Jesus is seen as a lamb slain from before the creation of the world. This lamb slain. And in the Old Testament day, the sinful person had to do it in obedient faith. Simply because God said, this is the way. There is no other way to approach God. Abel knew it. Noah knew it. Abraham knew it. Others knew it. 
And this is how it was to be done. Leviticus chapter 4 tells us specifically, a sinful person has to bring his offering. It has to be a perfect animal. He must bring it for the sin that he's committed. He's to lay his hands on the head of the animal and then slaughter it. Again, not a pleasant thing. But remember, we're talking about a substitute. It's either you die or the animal dies. The animal dies in your place. The animal is your substitute. The priest is to take some of that blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar. And God says, in this way, the priest will make atonement for him. He will be forgiven. Now that's a significant thing that had to happen. Okay, I'm a sinner. So I bring my animal and I come to the priest and I put my head on, hands on the head of the animal and I say, oh Lord, I have committed this sin, that sin. And I repent of it. And then as the animal dies, I stand back and watch its lifeblood pour out thinking that should be me. That should be my death. I committed sin. I'm the guilty one. Why should the animal die? Well, God said, this is the way I've given for you to be able to approach me as a sinful person. But sadly, having done that, I'm going outside again, and within a very short time, I'm going to do it again. Well, what do I have to do? Find another animal. Bring it in. Put my hand on its head. Kill it. Watch it die in my place. This happened again and again in an individual's life. It happened again and again in the, in the communal life of the nation of Israel. They had what was called a day of atonement. And there the, the priests did it on behalf of themselves and they did it on behalf of the nation and so on. But this is God saying, here is the way. This is the only way you can approach me. You need a sacrifice. You need a substitute. And you must come in obedient faith because that's the only way that I'm, I'm permitting people to come to me. I'm a holy God. I'm a righteous God. Someone must die. Something must die. And God had said this, I, give, I have given you the blood so you can make atonement for your sins, says Leviticus 17. And yet in Hebrews it says it very, very frankly, without the shedding of blood there cannot be any forgiveness of sin. A lot of people have the wrong idea about God. You weigh up your good deeds and you weigh up your bad deeds and hopefully you've got more good deeds than bad deeds. I mean, that's the religions of the world, but it's not our faith. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says clearly, without the shedding of blood, there cannot be any forgiveness of sin. Those Old Testament people had to offer the same sacrifices again and again and again. And yet, sadly, the scriptures tell us it's impossible that the blood of an animal can substitute for my blood. It's impossible that the blood of an animal and the life of an animal can substitute for your life. You're a human being. You're made in the image of God, we've been learning. So how can an animal substitute for you? It's not possible. 
And so Jesus came. God sent Jesus. He sent him to be the saviour of the world. He sent him as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist recognised him. He sent him, the Bible says, to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. You may have a Bible that says propitiation. You may have a Bible which says expiation. Put them all together and it means whatever price was to be paid to satisfy God's wrath against sin, Jesus satisfied it. He came to do it and he did it. And he came to die as a substitute for every single sinner. He came to die in your place. He came to die in my place. He came to die for the sins of the whole world. What an incredible saviour. Friends, Jesus has done it. He's done it. He not only wins, but he's done it because he has appeared, the Bible says, once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin. Remember, I keep telling you about my Indian Bible that says not just to do away with it, but to make it to cease to be the issue between God and man. To make it to cease to be, says my Indian Bible. And that's what he's done, and he's done it once. And he's done it once for all. It never needs to be done again. And he did it by the sacrifice of himself. And he goes on to tell us in Hebrews, and we as believers, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. What an incredible statement. No wonder we want to worship him. Is it any wonder we've come to remember him, his body, his blood poured out for us? Body given, blood poured out. What he suffered, what he endured, these are things we can hardly conceive of. But the fifth reason why Jesus came and why he had to die and his blood to be poured out was that it was to provide a salvation. Not only that he did it, but now there is a gift of salvation. It's a gift of eternal life. It's a gift of forgiveness. It's a gift of all of the beauties of salvation. Salvation, I keep saying, is like an umbrella word. And whether it, it be a word, whether you say being born again, whether you say I'm a child of God, whether you say I have peace with God, whether you say I'm justified, whether I'm righteous, whether I'm forgiven, all of these things all come under the banner of salvation. And every one of them is available to us only because the Lord Jesus came. And he gave his life and his blood was poured out and he suffered in our place as our substitute. The scripture says this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. The next verse says this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be that atoning sacrifice for our sins. And goes on to say in chapter 4 of 1 John, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And when you gaze at the cross, we sing a song which says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, what do you see? Just a suffering man? 
Or do you see that one who in God's eyes was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world? What do you see when you see that picture? What do you see? While we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. The acceptable sacrifice. You see, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, capital sin, for us. The Bible says in Peter, Christ suffered for you. It was for your sake, I read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. And here is Christ as our substitute. Friends, it's easy for me to say our substitute. But I need us to be able to think this in a very personal way. He's your substitute. He's my substitute. He's the substitute for each and every one of us. And as he suffered and died there, the Bible says Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. Put your hand up. We're all unrighteous. We're all unrighteous. Christ died to bring you to God. What a beautiful Savior. His death was planned. It was purposed. It was exactly what God needed so that you and I could come to God. And if you look at the cross, you see... That they had nailed an accusation against Jesus to the, on the cross. The accusation was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But in Colossians, Paul writes about it and he says, well, what God has done is actually taken the charge sheet that stood against us. In other words, the list of your sins and my sins. And he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. What an amazing thing. Your list of sins is probably only an itty-bitty one. Mine's awful. But the beautiful thing is that my sins were nailed to the cross. Your sins were nailed to the cross. And when Jesus died, God said, he died for you. He bore your sin. Our substitute And so the question now comes for us as sinners. By faith, we must place our hands upon the head of Jesus, just as they did in the Old Testament, and recognize that he has done it for us. The Bible says there is no difference. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we can be justified or declared without any guilt at all, freely by his grace, through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And that basically is saying that you and I need to put your hand upon the head of Jesus. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put your hand on the head of Jesus by faith and said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me? That really is the critical thing. The fact that he died is a fact of history. The fact that he truly died, our Muslim friends have it, he didn't die, he just swooned. He didn't die. But that's a lie of Satan. He died. 
But the thing is, he died for me. He died in my place. He died in your place. And you need to have your hand upon his head and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. I yield to you. And as I've been saying, Jesus wins. And I want to say, Jesus has done it. He's done it. He defeated Satan. He has provided the way. But now he's done it. And the scripture says, by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, says Hebrews chapter 9. I love that scripture. And when I hear Christ crying from the cross, it is finished. An amazing statement. An amazing statement. There are people who think that they must add to what Jesus has done. But of course we don't need to add. We simply need to be obedient. We don't add anything to what he has done. We simply need to yield to him with our hand upon his head and say, Lord Jesus, you've done it all. Well, what does his death now mean for us? That was God's plan. Those five things were what God intended, what God accomplished. The Bible says all this is from God. Everything that we've talked about is from God, what God did. But what about you and me? Where do we come into this? What has God planned for you and me? Well, the first thing is this. We are reconciled to God, the Bible says. When we were God's enemies, Paul wrote in Romans, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son. In Corinthians, Paul writes, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Reconciliation, what does it mean? I think I told you once that down in the church we were in in Adelaide, there was a bit of a problem in one of the marriages down there and the man was over here and the lady was over there and, and uh, the other worker there with me was a, a dear brother and we were fellowshipping together and working together to try and resolve this issue and he said, will you go to the man and I'll go to the woman and we'll try and bring them together. Well, we did that. We physically got them to come and sit down but there was no reconciliation. All we had done was physically bring them to sit in the same room in chairs opposite each other. The issue was that there was a barrier. There was something between them that needed to be resolved. And friends, there is something that needs to be resolved between us and God. And the Bible says it is your sins that have separated from you and God. Your sins are the barrier. And what God has done is reconcile us. By removing that barrier. God hasn't moved. When God created Adam, there he was in beautiful fellowship, harmony with God. But when Adam disobeyed God and moved away in disobedience and turned his back on God as he, he pronounced his declaration of independence from God, God hasn't changed. He is still the same holy, righteous, amazing God. But for man to be able to come back, God has provided the way. And so as believers, we've been reconciled to God. We've been brought back to that beautiful fellowship and harmony with God. And how did it happen? Through the death of his son. While we were still enemies. It's not even while we were searching for God, while we were against God, while we ignored God, while we did our own thing as enemies of God, sinners. 
while we were still God's enemies, he has reconciled us through the death of his son. So that word reconciliation is a theological term we need to grasp. Here's another one. We are redeemed. We sing about it. We talk about it. But the Bible says in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's mercy. Well, that's lovely. But what does redemption mean? Well, redemption means setting a captive free by paying a ransom, the ransom price. And that verse I read to you this morning from 1 Peter said it exactly. God paid that ransom. God paid it to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. The ransom he paid was not mere silver or gold. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him for this purpose long before the world began. Now in these final days, he, sent, he was sent to the earth for all to see. And he did this for you. God did it. God did it. What an amazing thing. Redemption means setting a captive free. You're the captive. I was the captive. But God has set us free by paying that ransom price. Here's the third thing that happens to us. We are made right with God when we believe in Jesus. The Bible says, God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus, who has freed us by taking away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. And we were made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. This word is justified, another theological word. But it basically means being declared right before God, which equally means being declared not guilty before God. Those verses I've taken from the New Living Translation, it just somehow seemed to say what I wanted to say. What an amazing thing. See, this is salvation. Reconciled, redeemed, justified, declared not guilty, and all because of the death of my beautiful Lord Jesus. All because of what he's done for me. But why me? For you, for all of us. He's done it for the whole world, yet the whole world hasn't really sorted that out yet. What a sad, sad thing. And this is another. We've been forgiven all of our sins. God has purchased our freedom with his blood and has forgiven all of our sins. You know that long list I had? Well, it was nailed to the cross. And God says, with the shedding of his blood, there is now forgiveness of your sin. Christ has paid the price. He gave his life. And here for you and for me is the most wonderful gift of salvation. God promised in that covenant, remember, I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. I love that. I will forgive. 
He's the same one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Sometimes we fail, sometimes we stumble, sometimes we feel that we've done the most awful, horrible things. But still God says, I will forgive you. I will remember your sins no more. You and I can't do that. We can forgive, but we somehow can't erase it from our memory. But God can. He's God. And the lovely thing for me is this. That even though I stumble and fall and sin, here is the blood of Jesus continuing to do what it is intended to do. It says, Paul, John writes, if we are living in the light of God's presence, just as Christ is, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses from all sin, goes on cleansing us from all sin. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Oh, Satan's the accuser. Satan wants to condemn me. Satan wants to say, see, you've done it again. Huh, look at you, you can't do it. And that's what Satan says. And he says it all the time because that, that's his job. He's the accuser of the brethren. But God says no. And if God doesn't condemn me, then how can anyone else condemn me? And I have... Praise God, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, to cleanse me from every sin. Does that give me a license to sin? Never. Does that make it easy for me to sin? Well, it should never. I should constantly think of what Jesus did for me. And when I think about it, John tells us what he saw in heaven. Here's the next thing. I haven't put a number on this because I thought, well, this is something marvellous. Those other four things that I've talked about, being reconciled, being redeemed, being justified, being forgiven, they're all now, now, now. But John had a vision in heaven. And what he saw in heaven was this. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Well, that has to be Jesus. And I saw four and living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the lamb and they sang a new song. And the song was, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Oh, wow, what a song. It's true. And all praise and honor to the Lord Jesus. But that's not the end of the song. The song says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests unto their God. Wow. Wow. The blood of Jesus has not only reconciled us and redeemed us and forgiven us and justified us, but through the blood of Jesus, look at you now. A kingdom. You are priests, a priest able to approach God, to worship God, to serve God, to praise God. You can do it. So can I. And it's out of every tribe and every nation and every language and everywhere around the world. And praise God, today there are literally millions upon millions upon millions of believers worshiping God because of the blood of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus. And here we are. Just a few of us in Budrum, and we're doing it too because of Jesus. I want us to sing not a new song. I want us to sing an old song. Here's an old song which says, Alas, 
and did my Savior bleed. Let's remain seated and sing this song with a sense of awe and wonder as we think about the death of our Lord Jesus and his blood shed for me, for you, alas. And yeah, it'll just come up. We're just going to...